Hi everybody and welcome. We're really glad you could join us. Today we're kicking off a series of practical webinars to help practitioners understand material performance and how to balance it with budget and quality requirements. Today's session will cover the development of the materials assessment framework and explain how it can be used to undertake resource assessment. My name's Elena Gardner. I'm the communications manager at Austroads and I'll be moderating today's session. I acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we're broadcasting today. I pay my respect to elders past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitangi and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. So a little bit about Austroads, we're the peak organisation of Australasian Transport and Traffic Agencies. Our focus is to support our member organisations to deliver an improved road transport network. We use a program management approach to deliver our work and each program is focused on an operational area of the road system. The project we're discussing today was delivered under the Assets Program, which is managed by Ross Guppy and coordinated by Eliz Esteban. So just a little bit of housekeeping. The presentation today will run for about an hour and a half and will include three short Q&A sessions. We do record all of our webinars and we'll email you once the recording is uploaded on our website. We also distribute our webinars via podcast and you can subscribe to our channel by searching for Austroads in your podcast app. Today's presentation slides can be downloaded from the handout section in your sidebar. You'll find that over on the right hand side of your screen. If you run into any technical problems today, please let me know in the questions section of your sidebar. But just a quick tip, if you do lose sound or your picture freezes, that is most likely an issue with your connection. And closing your browser and rejoining the session via your email registration usually fixes that problem. So the session today is based on uh, two reports produced by Austroads. You can download both of those reports from the handout section in your sidebar. Uh, if you're joining us via the recording today, they, those reports can be downloaded from the Austroads website at no charge. So our guests today are Zia Rice, who you might remember from our previous webinar on sustainable roads, and Phil Hunt. We'll first hear from Zia, who has worked at ARB for just over four years and leads the Perth Pavement Team. Zia has more than five years previous experience as a geotechnical consultant, where she gained extensive field experience in natural materials and engineering geology. Our second expert is Phil Hunt. Phil has nearly three decades of experience in the road design and construction industry, specifically in the concept, planning, design, construction, maintenance, and asset management of roads and bridges. So first of all, we're going to hear from Zia, who'll provide an overview of the materials assessment framework. Then you'll have an opportunity to have any questions about the framework answered. Phil will then take us through a detailed case study based in central Western Queensland, and that will be followed by a further Q&A session. And then Zia will present a case study of the materials option assessment, and that will be followed by a final Q&A session. You can lodge a question at any time. Uh, during the session. It does really help us to have the slide numbers that uh, your slide relates to, your question relates to. So um, just a reminder that the slides can be downloaded from the handout section. And um, yeah, just use the question uh, section in your uh, sidebar at any time. Okay, so I will now hand over to Zia. Welcome Zia, it's good to have you with us today. Thanks Elena, thanks for the nice introduction as well. Can you see my screen okay now? Yes, that's perfect, thanks. Perfect. All right, so 
Thanks everyone for coming along today. You may have tuned into our webinar back in April, uh, which Elena mentioned. Um, and that was much um, more of a broader overview of the project as a whole and only ran for about an hour, which is always a very tight time frame to fit everything in. So we're actually meant to do a few uh, dissemination sessions in selected regional locations at the final step of this project, but obviously due to the current travel restrictions, we've decided to offer these sessions as online format so we could still disseminate um, the important information and generate some discussion. So we have three sessions planned for this series, um, this being the first. Um, each session will all follow the similar format where we have three sub-sessions broken up by three Q&A sessions. And this is just to allow for discussion um, more so than our previous webinar. Uh, we also got some special guest speakers joining us during these sessions to help give another dimension uh, to the session and also just to break it up a little bit, uh, make it a little bit more interesting for you guys listening at home. Uh, so now that we've had a bit of an introduction, I'll get stuck into the technical side of things. Um, so as Elena mentioned, this is based on uh, the two report outputs for this project. So this webinar today is focusing on the technical basis report, which is the one on the right. And this report contains a lot of detail about how the frameworks were developed. Um, and it also discusses things like evidence and justifications for the tools that we developed. Um, so if you're going through the other report, the user guide, and you think, oh, I wonder why they did it this way, or I wonder why they've used this, uh, take a look at the technical basis report which will hopefully answer any questions you have. Uh, the evaluation tool and user guide report is the practical side of things. And this is the uh, report that we presented on during our original webinar um, on April 15th. And you can find the recording for that webinar on the Austro's website. And you can also download these two reports in your sidebar today at the handout section. So I would encourage you to do that. So the technical basis report focuses on three areas, um, fit for purpose material use and a definition of this, predicting and controlling performance, which includes the development of the materials assessment framework. And finally, the life cycle costing assessment, which will be covered by the next two webinars um, in this series. So let's first define fit for purpose material use before we go any further. I did touch on this in our original webinar, but for those who might not have um, been at that webinar or, or have seen it, I will just go over this again. So understanding what influences the performance of a pavement and how the performance can be predicted and controlled is the key to fit for purpose use of materials. Um, it requires us having an in-depth understanding of the material properties, the operating conditions, which include traffic loads, as well as climate loads, especially moisture. And finally, the life cycle cost component, which includes things like level of service targets, road user costs and maintenance and rehab intervention throughout the asset life. By accounting for all these components, we can ensure we choose or use a material which is fit for purpose. So let's look into each one of these items, uh, material properties, traffic and moisture characteristics, a little bit more detail. So first up, we have material characteristics. Uh, what aspects of fit for purpose material use are determined or influenced by the material? Well, we have our pavement performance risk, our stabilisation and modification requirements, and also our moisture limiting design requirements. And these 
aspects will all be dependent on what the material properties are combined with other items, uh, traffic and moisture. So first up, we have pavement performance. Typical performance indicators for a pavement can be things like roughness, uh, rutting extent and depth across the section, cracking percentage, surfacing or edge defects, or even deflection and curvature measurements of a pavement, um, either from a falling weight deflectometer or a TSD assessment. Pavement performance will be dependent on how the pavement is designed first up, with incorrect design leading to poor performance. The construction quality will also influence pavement performance. And this is why we have our quality assurance and quality control measures during construction to ensure the pavement is constructed to a level as assumed by the design. Um, as well, a well-designed pavement which is not constructed properly will have performance issues. So these are really important um, aspects of pavement performance. And lastly, we have pavement material influencing performance. So if we assume material strength properties in design, which may not be representative of the action material, there will be performance issues. So this is why we have things like material specifications. Although when we start to talk about naturally occurring or non-standard materials, these materials don't always align with the specification. So the risk of poor performance is going to be greater. It's how we quantify the risk. So how high is the risk of poor performance of a material in a certain operating environment, and that is the key to fit for purpose use. So out of these three performance influences, we can control the design and we can control the construction quality um, as best we can. It's a material risk that we it is usually the unknown. So material performance is usually based on things like experience or, or past performance. And this type of thing is not always well documented. So this is where the material assessment framework comes in to allow us to really understand um, and quantify how our material properties will affect performance in certain operating environments. The next aspect of fit for purpose use uh, from a materials perspective is where the material stabilisation or modification will be required. Um, and this usually comes after you've quantified your risk of poor performance and it's essentially a risk reduction technique. And I will get into risk reduction techniques uh, in the last subsession of the webinar today when we talk about the materials options assessment. So it's really how can I alter my material to reduce risk while also controlling cost? It's a very fine balance. So on the slide, I've just got a table uh, which has been taken from the Austroads uh, part 4D, which focuses on stabilisation. And this table just demonstrates the different options and suitability of different stabilisation agents depending on material properties. So choosing the most appropriate binder for stabilisation becomes important when you're assessing all your options for fit for purpose use, because it might reduce, reduce the risk of um, poor performance, but it may increase your costs to a point where it's no longer viable. And another thing that this table shows is how important it is to understand the material you're, you are working with. So understanding the, the grading and the plasticity at a minimum um, to really be able to target your um, stabilisation modification um, requirements. Uh, just a reminder, send us your questions throughout the webinar through your sidebar so we can answer them in the Q&A uh, subsessions. So the final aspect 
of fit for purpose use determined by material is moisture limiting design. And uh, similar to stabilization or modification, this can be a risk reduction technique and it often can be chosen based on the performance risk and cost benefit. So when we think about non-standard or naturally occurring materials, moisture in a pavement can be more detrimental to pavement performance and the traffic loads. So it's important that we keep the pavement dry. There are many different options for this uh, with obviously varying costs and extent. So we have things like sealing our shoulders, uh, stabilizing our shoulders, depending, uh, deepening our side drains, raising embankments um, and ensuring adequate crossfall. These are all examples of moisture limiting design. But we also have considerations such as timely maintenance to reduce vegetation around our pavement or even crack sealing more often to prevent moisture penetration through the surfacing. So it's important to understand these moisture limiting designs um, due to the influence that moisture has on our pavement performance. Let's now turn to aspects of fit for purpose material use determined by traffic. So our traffic characteristics will influence our design, our road importance, our performance criteria and our functionality requirements. So let's just go into these a little bit more in a bit more depth. So first up, we have our pavement design. And just as an example, I've put up the empirical design chart from Austroads part two, just to demonstrate the role which traffic plays, even in the simplest form of pavement design. Obviously our design also depends on our material strength, um, in this case with our California bearing ratio, but um, our structural loads on the pavement is underpinning our thickness design, so our design traffic along the bottom. So it's really important um, you know, to understand what our traffic levels are, not only for design, um, but also in our operating conditions for our material performance. The other aspects determined by traffic include our road importance, level of service, performance criteria and functionality requirements. Now, these things become a little bit more important when we think about budgets and life cycle um, costing. So for fit for purpose, it's important to understand all of these defining items. These We will go over these a little bit more, as I mentioned in the next two webinars, when we do start to focus more on the life cycle costing. But I thought it was good to just give a brief introduction of some of these uh, aspects. So road importance relates to how the road is used in terms of traffic and what the road purpose is. So uh, is it a tourist road with high volumes? Is it a regional road, uh, an access road for emergency services into a national park? Uh, these things need to be considered. Uh, then we have our level of service, which is related to road importance. Um, and it's that the level, it's the level the road is expected to perform at. So a tourist access road might have a higher level of service comp compared to a rural agricultural access road. Um, as an example, maybe a poor example, but freeways represent the highest level of service requirement. And this is typically due to the high volumes of traffic and the high importance of these roads in our urban centres. Uh, performance criteria. Uh, this is where we start talking about, you know, what are the cutoff values for things like roughness and rutting and cracking and that type of thing. Um, so higher importance roads with higher level of service requirements are going to have much more stringent performance criteria. Um, 
So that is they will likely require more maintenance over the life. Um, they will require higher quality materials to keep performance risk low. And again, this plays into the life cycle cost side of things um, and is a bit more is more important to understand for that side. Finally, we have functionality requirements. And when we talk about functionality, we are referring to things such as uh, pavement noise levels, skid resistance requirements, and just general pavement serviceability. And these requirements will depend on a few uh, different things, such as, again, traffic level, road function and importance, but also things like road location. Um, again, the functionality requirements of a low speed low volume unsealed service road are going to be a lot different to a high speed sealed urban road. So finally, we have our um, moisture characteristics aspect, which influences purpose material use. And we've touched on these things previously. So we've, we've touched on pavement performance when we we're talking about traffic, uh, when we talk about material properties, sorry. And also we've already touched on moisture um, limiting design requirements. So I'm not gonna go through these again. I'm just demonstrating that there is some crossovers here between uh, moisture characteristics and traffic and um, material characteristics which all play in together. And, and this just demonstrates how, you know, these three aspects, traffic, material, moisture, all interact with each other to give us a fit for purpose material use. Um, so now that I've given you a bit of an introduction uh, into fit for purpose material, a bit more in depth than our last webinar. And again, you can find this um, kind of in depth description in the technical basis report. I just wanna move on to the material assessment side of things um, uh, and all the things that we need to consider when we're doing this type of assessment. So the material assessment is meant to predict and control material performance. So on the slide, I have an outline of the assessment protocol. Uh, I'm just going to go through a few of these steps just to demonstrate um, the basis for the material assessment and, and why each step is important. So just jumping forward a little, the idea of material assessment, of the material assessment, is to predict and control performance of pavement materials uh, depending on our operating conditions. So the actual risk assessment which we've developed is actually based on this performance mechanism idea. Um, the figure on the slide, which is again also in the report, this just aims to visually demonstrate how material performance is influenced by traffic, moisture and material properties um, all playing in at, at one time. So as our traffic and moisture loads increase, the risk of poor material performance also increases and material properties are gonna become much more critical. So as, a, as moisture increases on the y-axis, material properties such as permeability and plasticity become much more important and need to be constrained. For traffic, uh, grading properties become more important um, as a good grading provides stability and durability. So the higher the traffic, the more important it is to have the correct grading and that type of thing. When we have a combination of moisture and traffic, which is more the norm, we need to think about all of these material properties if we want to ensure or predict material performance. So it's important to note um, that we can't always have a well-performing material. So in the cases where um, the only option is to use a material which in the design scenario may have a medium or high risk of poor performance, 
Um, we just need to ensure that we've allowed for things like extra periodic maintenance, um, for example, or implementing moisture limiting designs such as sealed shoulders, uh, steep embankments and that type of thing. And this is fit for purpose use, not just making a material completely low risk. Um, we have to work with what we have and, and tweak the other components to make it feasible. So back to the assessment process, um, one of the first things we looked at is moisture probability. And the reason we've included um, moisture into the assessment process is that you know literature and historic um, experience has continually shown us that moisture plays the biggest role um, in the performance of non-standard and naturally occurring pavement materials. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, traffic obviously also plays a role um, as an external load, but our external loads of moisture play a bigger role, especially in wet areas. So to account for moisture, um, accounting for moisture when we do our assessment is, is very important. So it's, and it kind of provides a project contents, context. So we need to understand our traffic levels and we need to understand our moisture levels to really understand our operating environment. Uh, so to allow us to capture the moisture in the assessment process, we developed this idea of moisture probability. And the moisture probability is based on, um, is calculated from rainfall data um, and that's been collected um, by the Bureau of Meteorology or BOM. Um, and it's free to download this uh, historic rainfall data from the BOM website. Um, and when we do this assessment, we're looking at this standard 30 year climatology period between 1961 and 1990. And, and this is the period which is considered standard for climate assessments. So to calculate our moisture probability, it depends obviously on your location and you can down, you can un, um, have a look at your closest weather station on the BOM website. It's quite easy um, to look at. Um, and all you do is download your historic data. Sometimes there might be data missing between that 1961 and 1990 period and you might have to go uh, to a further out um, weather station. But essentially what we're doing is we're looking at that 30 year period and we're looking at any years where our rainfall exceeded 500 mil and then um, getting a probability. So if uh, three years out of that 30 years is over 500 mil, our probability is three over 30%. Uh, um, and again, why have we chosen 500 mil? Um, Again, based on historic publications, uh, documentations, experience, it's, it seems to be that 500 mil is often a good indicator of, of where um, uh, material performance starts to really be affected by moisture in the climate. Um, I've just got this figure on the slide here, which um, is just to demonstrate how the different locations within Australia um, have differences in average rainfall um, across the region. So it's important to understand where you are um, in terms of moisture and climate. So the actual risk assessment, which we developed is based on the performance mechanism idea that I just went through on the previous slide before. Um, and to do this, to be able to capture this performance mechanism idea, we've developed a risk catalogue, which is uh, the, uh, the table on the slide. And this catalogue allows us to select the right operating criteria for our risk assessment. So 
if we're looking at high traffic and high moisture, then we're dealing and we're dealing with a sealed road, we need to be looking at risk category S9. Um, we've also developed risk assessments for unsealed roads. So similarly, um, if you have a high traffic and a high moisture probability, then you're looking at risk assessment category U9, which is uh, unsealed nine. Um, once we have our risk assessment category, we also need to account for our material category. And, and this is only relevant for the sealed roads risk assessment. We didn't bring this through to the unsealed roads. Um, and the reason we define a material category is that, again, historic observations have continually demonstrated that um, materials with different origins perform differently in pavement applications. So by origins, I mean geological origins. So ironstone and ferrocrete, which are typically superficial deposits, are going to perform a lot differently to our sedimentary deposits, such as limestone or sandstone. So it's important that we understand exactly what our material is. Otherwise, our risk assessment output might not actually be correct. So uh, we've included two material categories, uh, A and B, which cover the different, um, most of the different types of pavement materials throughout Australia. So we've selected our risk assessment category based on our load and moisture conditions. And if we're dealing with the sealed road, we've also selected our material category, either A or B. And we then can undertake an assessment of the material using the risk assessment table in conjunction with our material properties. Um, and we chose finds ratio grading modulus and weighted linear shrinkage for the risk assessment. And again, the reason we chose these um, is detailed in the technical basis report in a bit more detail, but essentially it's based on evidence and historic um, data, but We've also tried to choose indices um, which can be calculated from simple uh, lab testing such as gradings and plasticity requirements rather than going into you know, expensive um, performance testing. So uh, I only have the risk assessment table up on the slide for sealed roads, uh, material, material category A, uh, but there is a similar one for category B and also another one for sealed road, uh, unsealed roads, sorry. Um, the only thing that changes with the unsealed roads is that we are only looking at grading modulus and weighted linear shrinkage. And you'll see that the material property criteria's number, numbers, sorry, uh, change as with different categories and as you go down in your different risk assessments categories. So uh, if you're in category S9, for example, you go down to the bottom of this table and, and feed in your results to get a material risk. Um, I just want to touch on how we developed the material property criteria for the risk assessment table. I should have shown this on a previous slide um, to demonstrate the process we went through for sealed roads risk assessment. So the first thing we did, um, and this is again detailed in the technical basis report, um, is that we gathered local specifications from throughout Australia. So a range of locations, um, you know, different traffic, different climate. Um, and then we identified the local material types. So, you know, we looked at the geological maps to see, you know, what, what's, um, what's common in these types of areas. What, you know, what is it that they'll be using? What are these specifications developed for? Um, we've also then identified typical traffic conditions. So either sometimes uh, these specifications have a traffic limit for which they should be used, 
I mean, other cases, you know, we've calculated that based on traffic counts and, and things like that. And we've also identified our climatic conditions. So, you know, we went through and calculated the moisture probability for the different regions that we had spec for. And then essentially what we did is we um, fitted those material into the risk catalog. So I've got an example on the side here in this table, you can see we're looking at the Goldfields Esperance uh, specifications, which is a, um, a area in WA. And for the different risk assessment categories, uh, we've gone through and we've kind of thought about what the material risk would be. So for example, um, if you're using a specification that's been developed in a very dry area with a very high traffic, then your risk in these operating conditions are expected to be very low. Um, and maybe your risk in high moisture would be very high because you know these local specifications have been developed for very dry uh, climate. Um, conversely, if you're looking at specs from a very wet area, very low traffic, you know, um, when you're in your high moisture operating conditions, you would expect a low performance, uh, low risk performance because uh, these specifications were developed for that type of that type of climate. Um, and then just touching on the unsealed roads risk assessment um, before I finish up. We developed the unsealed, instead of collecting specifications, we actually looked at this um, diagram that's up on the slide, which is from South Africa. And essentially what we've done is we've looked at each of these uh, performance areas. So, you know, we can got A, B, C, D and E. We've looked at each of them and we've kind of done a similar uh, uh, risk assessment for each of the different risk assessment categories. So. Um, you know, our, our operating area D, where things are often are slippery, this was given a very high risk in high moisture conditions and a low risk in uh, low moisture conditions. So that's how we've come up with the actual material criteria for the risk assessment table. So just to recap before we go into our next sub-session and take some questions, um, and before... Um, I just wanted to go over the process one more time so that we had you know, a good understanding. So we have our design traffic, our material type, and our moisture probability. Um, so you know, we feed them into our risk catalog, we get a risk category, and then we're using our material properties in conjunction with the risk assessment table at the right category to, to um, output our material risk. Uh, so we'll have some question time now and then uh, Phil Hunt will continue the presentation and we'll look at a bit of a case study from Central Western Queensland and how this assessment process works and how you can follow it through from start um, all the way through to getting a material risk. So we'll take some questions now, Lena. Great. Thanks so much, Zia. It's a really good overview of the um, assessment process. We do have quite a few questions, so I'll just dive into them. The first one relates to slide 16. Um, and it's why is the condition of the wearing surface, um, i.e. the sprayed seal, not included as a performance indicator? Yeah, so on the slide, uh, I think I've shown a few typical performance indicators. Um, I should have said that, you know, this is a, uh, what we're limited to when we look at performance indicator. There is a lot of different indicators depending on our, um, you know, our road importance, our level of service, what our road um, you know, the, the road 
um, you know, what the road's used for. I've just provided um, a few of the main uh, pavement performance indicators on the side. But yes, there is a lot more and it will depend on your design scenario. Great. Okay, thank you. Um, so next question relates to slide 19. Um, and it's uh, would stabilising a shoulder material provide low permeability and potentially trap moisture in the outer wheel path on the low, slide, low side of the lane and therefore cause rutting or shoving in the granular material? Yep, so again, this is something when, when we're choosing our moisture limiting design, um, you know, what we want to do to limit our moisture, we need to think about how that's going to interact with the rest of the pavement. Um, in some scenarios, you might get that permeability um, clash between your shoulder and your base and sub-base materials, and you may, in fact, um, start trapping water and making that uh, a worse scenario. So it's really about, it's not always going to be the right uh, choice. It, it's really about understanding what your options are um, and having a really good understanding of all the different materials and, and parts of your pavement so you can decide, you know, whether this is going to be um, a positive change or a negative change. But it is just an example of um, some of the things that you can do which may work in certain operating conditions. You, we just need to understand, you know, if it's suitable for ours. Great. And another question um, is, uh, given this importance of moisture, how do pavement designers deal with the concept of permeable pavements where water is designed to infiltrate into the pavements? Yeah, and that's another really interesting question. It's probably not always uh, going to be applicable to our regional or rural areas uh, where we're using our non-standard and naturally occurring. I'd, I'd say that most of these permeable pavements would be used in areas where we have high quality materials um, or we're using things like um, rigid pavements and, and things like that. So when we're looking at fit for purpose use, we're really kind of um, considering just day-to-day -day normal pavements and not looking at these, um, you know, quite advanced uh, permeable pavements and things like that. Hmm. Okay, great. Look, I've got a few questions that relate to slide 26 is about moisture probability. Um, so the first question is, recently BOM has had uh, climate stations that haven't been repaired for a few days and the rainfall value for that month isn't included and therefore the annual rainfall for that year isn't provided. In those circumstances, would you recommend increasing the duration to 31 or 32 years where one or more years of annual rainfall is not provided by BOM? Yeah, and you know, I've, I've had to do this myself when I've gone through, when I was going through and calculating, you know, uh, probabilities for different regions. Um, you know, some regions didn't have um, any readings for the whole year. So it was really just uh, taking a stand back and, and using that engineering judgment to, to decide, well, you know, if we're missing uh, rainfall, um, you know, a month or a few months, but it's you know, it looks like it's generally the dry uh, season, you know, maybe that's not going to affect our calculations. But then if we're missing maybe six or seven months worth in one year, that maybe we need to consider, um, yeah, like someone said, using, you know, maybe 1960 or 1991 or 1992 to, to um, uh, account for that missing year. I think in some of the... Um, 
wondering now if you go through the technical basis report, I wonder if there's might have been some stations where I've actually reduced the probability calculation to um, 29 years uh, due to the fact that there might have been some missing data. So um, instead of number of years out of 30 years, I might have done number of years out of 28 years. But again, I've made that judgment. You know, if I'm getting down to you know 20 or 19 years worth of data, I'm probably going to start looking elsewhere to the, another station that might be you know nearby, not too far, um, to see if I can get some um, some extra data for that. But yeah, no, it's a good question because that does come up quite a bit. And the other question that relates to this slide is: Would you recommend um, updating the standard climatology period given our new knowledge about climate change and the changes in rainfall? Yeah, and this is another uh, good one too. I actually had a bit of a Google because I did think that, you know, we'd be obviously due for a new uh, period coming up in the next year. Um, but BOM have, and, and the uh, World Meteorology Organisation or something, they've decided to keep this 30-year period as they find it to be uh, the most representative of our climate. And, you know, I think in the technical, base, uh, technical basis report and also in the user guide report, I have put a paragraph in there about climate change because obviously that's something um, that, you know, is starting to come into our design a little bit more. It, it's becoming harder to predict, um, you know, the high intensity rainfall um, that we sometimes do have um, out of, you know, out of the blue. We need to kind of think about this when we're thinking about moisture probability, I suppose. So really kind of uh, if we are missing some months of data or some years, you know, really erring on that side of caution and, you know, maybe using values that might be, you know, maybe assuming that it's 500 mil if we're missing that data. So really being conservative again, because, you know, obviously these extreme events in our climate change, it just becomes harder and harder to predict our, our rainfall going forward. Okay. And look, we've got one final question, which relates to slide 18. Oh. That's not that one. Um, so do you carry repeated load triaxial tests to predict rutting of marginal materials? Yeah, and like uh, these these are the type of tests I was talking about before, you know, um, our repeated load triaxial, our, our wheel tracker, um, those type of more in-depth tests um, are really great for providing insight into material performance. But the problem is um, they can be very expensive. So they often need a lot of material. Um, so they're, they're good if, if you've got that budget um, to undertake those. But in most circumstances, our regional areas and, and local governments, they don't have the budget to do these types of tests. Um, and that's why we've kind of developed our risk assessment to be based on things like fines ratio, grading modulus and plasticity. So really all they need to understand is their grading and their plasticity. But, you know, we've looked at... Um, at historic data and, and published documentation, you know, which shows good links between these types of material properties and the outputs of more intense tests like uh, RLT and wheel tracking. Great. Look, thanks, Zia. That's terrific. I, um, that brings us to the end of the um, questions we have, which is really great. We've been able to cover them oh, all. Yeah. Great. So, look, I'll, I'll now hand over to Phil and he'll take us through the case study in central western Queensland. Thanks, Elena. Good to be Thank with you. you.
Great. Thea, for a good opening session there and um, setting the scene for the case study with all the technical background there. And uh, good morning to everyone. Uh, it's a bit different, a bit weird actually not seeing anybody, but let's see how we go. Um, so firstly, um, I might skip over a few slides today a little quicker than uh, I would like, but that's just because of time. They're there to uh, digest at your own leisure. And uh, don't get too concerned. I'll try and stop on the important ones a bit longer, um, enough for, to absorb today's uh, webinar. We are taking a bit of a helicopter view and it's hard to get every message across, but uh, we'll give it a good shake. I'd also like to acknowledge uh, Mr. Eric Denham and Mr. Rod Adams at the Central Western Queensland Office of Transport and Main Roads in Bar Calden, Queensland, and their team that assisted with soil test results and road inspections. Okay, so let's see how we go here. So you've seen the two documents uh, on the right there. Uh, Zia has introduced those. I just want to make mention of the Western Queensland Best Practice Guidelines, in 2000, dated 2000 and pavement materials in road building and our institution engineers document uh, in 99, which has a lot of good stuff on geology. Now, where are we? So central Queensland, uh, that black ring circles where we're talking about, and we dive in for a little closer look. You can see the roads that we studied about 750 kilometers in all, um, thereabouts. And yeah, uh, dinosaur country, uh, Lots of sandstone. We'll go into the materials in a second. That that area there, it covers about a thousand kilometres across the screen and 500 kilometres up the screen. So it's a massive area, and um, uh, you'll see a few photos, and you'll get the picture of the uh, the area uh, soon enough. But the the district out there has a long history of using non-standard materials or fit for purpose materials, use of available materials long hauls, long carts, often placing thin pavements, uh, 150, 200 mils thick, directly on natural subgrades. So let's just have a look, so you get a bit of an appreciation of what type of roads we're talking about. Seal roads, formation-wise, uh, you know, uh, general formation and so on. Very remote. We'll get a Baduri on the way to Birdsville. So in reactive country, you can see the cracking patterns and some of the challenges, uh, slightly elevated formation, generally just above natural ground level. And this was taken after the wet in February, 2019, hence all the green grass. And we couldn't get up here. We were actually planning to go in February, couldn't get up here for six weeks because of the flooding. So, <clears throat> excuse me, it is, um, in, can have an impact out there and different line marking arrangements to control the wander or to get, get track, trucks to travel on different paths and not in the same path. So we're um, looking after our pavements. Blackwall Jericho Road, you notice immediately a different, different environment. Claremont Alpha, same again. And the National Highway, uh, just south of Barcaldon. So today we're going to review gravel types and geology. We're going to have a look at the characteristics of those gravels and some specifications. And we're going to apply the Australia's risk catalogue uh, that Zia's talked about to these gravels and have a look at what that means. 
Um, we will talk uh, touch on a little bit about road performance and in addition to that, and hopefully in the next webinar, we'll, we'll address that in a little more detail. So with a bit of geology, now I'm not a geologist and it's important to broadly understand the geology and what it provides to the engineers and, and the team. In addition to the four documents I put up on the screen earlier, I'd also like to thank Mr. Ron Bathurst, engineering geologist from Toowoomba in Queensland for his assistance in regard to some of this information. So what we've got here is an idealized vertical profile and it's diagrammatic and really actually occurs so pure as this textbook version indicates. In reality, there are various secondary processes that often affect the site and hence why the, the surface is in the black thick dotted line there is shown. And therefore you might get a bedrock that might be on the surface as the above layers may have either not existed because of formation processes or were eroded away. So geologists often say that each site is unique until proven otherwise. Now the same goes with the actual formation processes and the chemical altering uh, that may have occurred <clears throat> during these processes. Hence why the same base rock can look different in colour and appearance for example, if iron or silica, et cetera, are involved in the formation processes. So I'm going to bring up there onto the slide, the uh, types of gravels in the Central West, and uh, not all of these are out there, but in different areas, generally you would find basalts in the East and white rocks possibly in the Southeast and so on. So uh, you can see particularly we've got ridge gravels, we've got sandstones and mud rocks and limestones, they're soft rocks as a sedimentary based bedrock. Now I've listed the green boxes there, the, the classifications that come out of the, the uh, green manual that I mentioned before, just for reference purposes. Now, while we're here on this slide, after any topsoil, let's just talk about processing and construction processes. After any topsoil is removed, extracting gravels or winning gravels in the top layers is commonly just by inloader. So we're talking the ridge gravels and that lateritic residuum of this regolith diagram. And you can see there that often that processing is quite simple for low end roads. For higher end roads, we might undertake some crushing or screening or blending. And occasionally there is suitable materials that do not require a major amount of processing, maybe just some oversize or dropping out of fines and the like. Extraction in the lower levels, however, after the overburden is suitably won and stockpiled and due to varying thickness and layering of the overburdens and softer materials below, it does take astute operators who can use both visual clues, and what I'm talking about there is layering, colour, size, size of grains, and physical cues such as resistance to machine power uh, to produce a successful outcome. It's a bit of an art, but it's a scientific based art, I guess. Then the bedrock often commencing around two to four metres below the surface and varying thickness of about two to four metres, is then usually often ripped by a dozer. And then depending on hardness and application type of road, it's processed in varying ways. So the very crudest form might be taken to site as raw material and grid rolled and broken down under compaction. The soft type materials, track rolling with a dozer in the pit, and then taken to site, rilled on site or in the pit and rock busted, rilled and pulverized using a recycler these days more readily available. Once we get to the high ends where we've got to crush harder rock and we're going into primary crushing and screening and certainly secondary and tertiary crushing and screening um, sometimes are appropriate. 
Now, Zia showed you this uh, table, and I just want to point out where our gravels lie. So, superficial deposits, ridge gravels typically, and the sedimentary, the soft sandstones, mud rocks, and soft limestones. Now, bear in mind that the sandstones and the limestones we're talking about here really do bear no resemblance to the, um, the buildings, the heritage buildings around Australia built out of limestone blocks and sandstone blocks. We're talking about a completely different material and, and quite soft, really, comparatively. So applying, just so you get a feel for what materials are where, back on our map here, you can see where the ridge gravels have been located there and where the Winton sandstones and the copies and mud rocks are located. Now, I just want to do a quick comparison in grading, because most engineering teams are used to looking at particle size distributions, and you might be surprised or shocked, one or two. So here we've got a specification gravel, a main roads Queensland specification gravel, the blue line, the dark blue thin line is uh, showing typical grading of and the light blue area is the envelope. So if we overlay the Western Queensland specification for subbase, it's very broad, covering all materials, and we won't spend too much time on that. The Western Queensland base two specification is slightly um, controlling the fines a bit more, if you like. And similarly with Western Queensland base alternative one, it's refining uh, into a, uh, a much tighter grading but still not near the specification gravels. Now, if we throw in a ridge gravel there, and I've deliberately hit it behind the specification so you can see it, but you can see the light envelope and the green dark line starting outside the specification at both ends, if you like, the coarse and the fine end, uh, and in the middle it, uh, it comes within that. But it's what we call an armchair gradient. You can sort of see the armchair shape of that. Now, if we throw up a sandstone, we're often breaking down the sandstone, a clay sand basically, high in fines. The rock particles really depend on how it's processed and how indeed the local hardness is. And the mud rock, typically a harder metamorphosed sedimentary rock and is typically crushed um, to some degree and giving us that top end sort of ridge gravel type profile or which does sit in with the uh, W Queensland base one uh, profile, generally speaking. So there's a bit of an overview. Have a look at that in detail if you later on, if you get a chance. So back onto the Winton Winston sandstones, uh, dinosaur country, as you can see, um, tells you straight away that it's coming out like a sedimentary rock you'd expect it. And if you, you zoom in a bit, you can see the layering within the rock. Now this is effectively very fine gradings. Um, and you can see there that the percent passing the 0.425 is 90%. Now this would depend on processing a little. And so it's a very fine and shrinkage. Sources vary from four to 10, but typically typical value is seven. So we just put up the Western Queensland specification as it sits. And you can see that the grading and uh, would typically at a pit that has been recently worked. And typically we're getting a sub-base type standard material. Moving on to the copi, or people call it limestone or gypsum based. And you can see in this picture, the overburden on top of the back of the quarry, if you like, and the face that's being worked. And 
very remote, rural or remote country that it's in. So just a bit of a close-up view of the overburden plus a bit of the gypsum limestone that's mixed in there. If we go in a bit, <coughs> excuse me, closer, you can see the crystallization, uh, probably some magnesium carbonate in this case. And in some bits, you get this the shells, um, obviously from its ocean-bearing days. Now, it's typically a coarser material, not as fine, so we'll have Sorry, just before we go on the next slide, just a bit of a reminder about questions. Uh, please pose your questions by using the sidebar on the way through. Now, on the limestone, you can see percent passing 0.425 is significantly different than Winton sandstone. Um, still shrinkages of similar values. And let's have a look um, at the Western Queensland specification. So grading-wise, it can often meet a base or a sub-base. But the shrinkage is the challenge here. And depending on the processing, the local pits available, local materials available, may depend on whether or not you really get a, even a Western Queensland specification material. But it's important to note that also these substandard materials below a Western Queensland specification are still being used and utilized in some areas. And, and maybe the Austroids material classification, risk classification can help even further, give a bit of um, comfort about that. So mud rock, now these are typically harder, slightly metamorphosed uh, sedimentary rocks and tend to be a bit harder. If we go in and have a closer look, you can see there's, there's a lot of angularity in the, in the stone um, and it's often crushed. Maybe just primary crusher, maybe secondary crusher, but certainly crushing and screening does go on to get a decent grading that depending on the road that we're, um, we're gonna put it on. So, if we just have a look at those properties um, and we compare it to the Western Queensland uh, specifications and look at some pits that uh, are out there, once again, we're failing on shrinkage. Um, very high fine product, but 80% uh, passing, sorry, 60% passing the 4255 sieve. And if I just bring up the last one there, so with a bit of processing and depending on dropping out of fines or mixing maybe some blending some materials, you may be able to get a Western Queensland specification product. Mind you, we're still way away from a standard specification on the coast, if you like. Ridge gravels, just briefly, harder rock, uh, superficial deposits, uh, either hard rock is oversized and needs to be crushed down to get the right grading, and if we have a closer look in here, you can see the angularity of the crushing and the roundness of the natural, and in probably both all size categories. Nice uh, matrix. And typically they are processed, depending on the pit's original qualities, um, to achieve um, the grading desired, the, the fines required, and maybe to adjust the shrinkage by blending. So, Austro's risk catalogue. We've got nine categories. It's all related to traffic. It's all related to moisture probability. Um, and we'll look at our materials in Central West Queensland in relation to this and see what, it, uh, what transpires. So, firstly, what I wanted to show you here was just 
Um, I haven't brought up the, the individual sites at this stage. I've just given you some generic traffic here down the A80T column from 50 through to 500. And if we just focus on a 20 year design life at this stage, um, the gray lines, you can see that generally 50 to 100 vehicles with a decent amount of HVs and road trains, which is typical on these sort of roads, um, you're getting a low to medium material risk traffic assessment category. And you get a two to 300, you're getting a medium to high and four to 500, you're getting high. So that's the sort of bands we're talking about here. Applying that to our site, we've got low, medium and high traffic risk for 20 years life. Now we're talking about moisture and, and Zia went into this a bit more detail, but here we've got each of the sites, each of the roads, we've got the nearest available uh, bomb center, annual average rainfall for comparison sakes, and then the probability based on the calculations. So looking at over the right hand side, you can see that we've got a low, medium and high, um, typically most of them are medium. And when we look at the map and apply that, you can see that obviously that's gonna go from east to west. And um, you might be surprised and thinking, well, really is Bar Calden, Winton, those areas medium risk. So what we're saying there is that the Australia's method is saying that the number of years greater than 500 mils of rain um, is in that medium category. So now when we apply the traffic risk assessment category with the moisture risk assess assessment category, we can obtain an S1 to S9 material risk assessment category. So in this particular case, you, you can see that we've got a range of uh, from S1 through to S7. And we'll look at that in a bit more detail in a second and, and look at the materials involved and see what uh, comes of that. So just to summarize, these uh, are the risk categories that we've identified in the Central West study. And we'll have a look in detail, probably at the high-end ones, the S5, S6, S7, and just see what comes of that. So what we do is we take the risk assessment categories, S1 to S7 in this particular case, uh, under the risk assessment category. We then start to look at our materials. So material types, what material category they are, the fines ratio, grading modulus, linear shrinkage, and the weighted linear shrinkage. And we calculate out what our material risk is. So interestingly, um, we can see here we're in an S5 and an S4, we ended up with, for that particular material, we ended up with a medium and a high risk outcome. Just keep that in mind, we'll have a look at that closer. Now likely, similarly down here, we've got a high risk uh, category, S7, driven by moisture. It's, it's high because it's in the high moisture category. So, but we've ended up, based on the materials, the ridge gravels that are used in this area, for the 10 and 20 year traffic life, we've ended up with a medium risk material. So some, a bit more detail and some examples. So let's have a look at the S7, Claremont Alpha Road, ridge gravel, 10 and 20 year traffic loading is both medium risk. So we won't go into great detail now. Suffice to say that we've looked at pavement performance. Now pavement performance in this particular exercise 
doesn't just look at the current day values of rutting, roughness and cracking and so on. It looks at how it got there over time, what ages of the pavement this is and how, what rate did it deteriorate at? So for example, a 40 year old pavement that has, uh, is sitting at 120 counts and started its life at 60 counts, has got 60 counts over uh, a number of 40 years, is less than two counts per year. So even though it might be at, let's say, a terminal level now, it's actually been a good performer for 40 years. So we've taken all those things into account and we may look into that. It's also important to note that the pavement performance just doesn't look at rutting roughness progressions and, uh, and cracking. We also look at maintenance costs inputs over the years. Now, Main Roads has some significant data on pavement maintenance costs and we were able to look with a quite a reasonable degree of confidence of the inputs on pavements, such as pavement repairs and the like, on these each all these uh, sections, uh, providing uh, good insight into um, pavement performance. So if you look at the age here, uh, sorry, I'll go back to one slide. Sorry, there we go. So the blue arrow here is the road that we've, the Claremont Alpha Road, and it indicates that down the bottom there, you can see that the associated labeling is the road number and VNR. So that, that represents dry and non-reactive, non-reactive subsoil areas, subgrade areas. Now there is no corresponding um, profile, it's missing here, zero, in the dry reactive zone. So what we've done here is we had a look at reactive soils and non-reactive soils, and look at how our medium risk gravels might have performed. So you can see here that this grey area um, underneath the blue arrow is showing that um, there was, a, I think, a number of kilometres that we couldn't calculate. It might have been recently constructed or something like that. Uh, so there's not enough data to actually make a reasonable um, go at that performance. So we, that green area there probably represents about 94% of good payment. So it's a great result. When we have a look at the age split up of that, we can see that a lot of those uh, pavements are actually 27 years old. And there's a few more recently constructed pavements also going quite well. One little area there might be uh, to have a look at there. But generally, excellent performance. So if we've got a medium Austroads risk ridge gravel um, that's performing at a really good level in a non-reactive environment. Now, I'd also just like to point out one more thing on this slide while we've got it here is that all the DRs to the left of the, um, I don't know if you can see my cursor there, but to the left side of that first pavement performance by road climate soil zone chart, you'll see that just by looking at the global colouring, you'll see a lot of orange and red compared to the right side of the chart where it's non-reactive soils. And this is important to understand. Now, what we're saying with the Osprey's risk category is we're saying that we're calculating out a material risk first. And we look at the fines ratios and all those things first. Then as, as designers, we know that we use subgrade soils uh, as, a, as an indicator of what we're putting on, how thick, thick we design the pavement. This is saying that, look, that's gonna be important. We need to know that. Let's have a look at the S5, very high risk gravel. Now it was very high risk based on the 20 year traffic loading. And uh, this is on the Kennedy Development Road with the Winton Sandstone gravel. And however, the 10 year um, traffic loading, put it back into the medium risk category. So we thought, well, it'd be interesting to have a look at the pavement performance here and see what it shows us. 
<clears throat> excuse me. So here we've got the two highlighted again, same chart, climate soil zone chart, and you can see 99C, uh, DR being dry and reactive, soil zone, 210 kilometres. That's the majority of the road, large road. So you can see that nearly one in two pavements is going okay and the other one is not. Um, it's either fair or poor. So if we just have a look a bit closer at that data, and I can't go into all of it here, but you can see that we, what we're bringing up here is a split of the Winton sandstone pavements that are granular on reactive soil, and the Winton sandstone cemented pavements. So on this particular road, there had been a number of failures uh, after wet weather events, and they had been cement stabilised in situ. And we've had a look at that performance. Now, you can see by the age of the cemented pavements, so some of these failures occurred um, about 15 to 20 years ago. Now, the oldest Witten Sandstone pavements are in the order of about 25 years, back from that first chart there, greater than 20. So this would indicate that some early failures did occur in between five and 10 years old. We have a look at uh, the others here, about five to 10 years old in that category, there's some significant uh, poor performance for young pavements there. Now, when we say young pavements, these were probably uh, in the order of 15 year old Witten sandstone pavements before they needed, or 20 year old before they needed correction. Maybe, just maybe that's acceptable. So we need to have a think about this and have a talk about what's acceptable performance and what isn't. I'll just point out that not a lot of Winton sandstone construction on this road uh, in the pure form uh, has occurred in the last five to 10 years. What I don't believe, I could be wrong, stand to be corrected on that, but we believe that that 38 kilometres in the five to 10 category in the granular is probably actually cement. Um, and we have to look into that a bit further. Now I'll probably skip over this one just for time, but it's a ridge gravel on the Landsborough Highway, medium risk, performance profiles can be looked at quite good performance profiles. When we look at age uh, on the reactive and the non-reactive, and we've got a bit more on the non-reactive, we're getting fantastic performance over time. The average age over those two areas is, I think, 27, no, 30, sorry, 30 odd years in, in the granular category, which is significantly uh, high and a great, great story. So a medium risk Osprey's risk assessment gravel on a, non, on a reactive soil is performing in an environment where it's a national highway, gets a full design, with probably uh, good pavement depths has been built up over the years, um, excellent performance. And we get better performance on the non-reactive soil areas. Once again, just a little aside, we had a look at some cement pavements, the, so the ridge gravels that were cemented uh, after failing. So all in the last 10 years, only eight kilometres, about 8% of, of that link, I think. And once again, we're not getting great performance. And so there's something in that, you know, we've been in a lot of in-situ stabilisation. It's convenient, it's uh, quick, it gets traffic going again, but maybe we're not getting great performance out of those. So what do we make of all this? The Australia's material, material risk assessment tool provides a useful way to well, firstly, compare gravels and their risk. It's an input into the economic considerations of haulage and cartage and 
and those type of things. What risks am I prepared to take? Can I take? Do I know where I sit? We can compare material variations within large source pits as well, and that might be useful. It assists review of road performance, and based on the examples shown previously, obviously areas of reactive soil um, and considering how that might interact with a certain risk category gravel, a medium, low or high risk gravel, is certainly uh, worth knowing. Some of, there is a question around some of the cemented treatments and, and more work probably does need to be done there. So what are the areas of further work? I mean, certainly the application of material risk for reactive and non-reactive subgrade soils could be um, looked into further and, and determine whether or not that needs to be included as some further explanation in the manuals. Identifying what industry deems as acceptable pavement performance profile. Now, what does a certain material risk on a certain subgrade type really cost over the life of a pavement? And we may go into some of that in the next webinar. And that's what it's really about. How much is this costing? If I only get one in two pavements survive greater than 15 years, is that acceptable or is that not acceptable? We need to have a look at the cemented materials performance in, with fit for purpose gravels. It may have a role to play. We need to have a look at that closer. Confirming flood and major rainfall impacts on performance and life cycle cost. Some work there does need to be done. So uh, after the COVID times are over and you're allowed to travel, head out to central West Queensland, beautiful country. Um, lots of um, history out there. Don't trip over the 3D pedestrian crossings though, especially not the one in Bulga. So thanks for your time. I hope that's informative and, um, and hopefully you can use the manuals to your own advantage. Great, thanks so much, Phil. Um, we do have a couple of questions uh, for you in relation to your really great um, case study. So the first one uh, relates to slide 44, so I'll take us back to there. Um, so the question is, I'm a little confused uh, about the green book classes and the other classes that you've shown here. Um, can you clarify the differences and the source of the classification used? So the Green Book uh, classifications, uh, I think they were 1999. Um, they chose a certain uh, way to classify, classify gravels. They've classified ridge gravels, class C, transported deposits, class D, class A being in situ rocks, weathered rocks, now that would typically be a weathered basalt of some description, hard rock. And then you've got the soft rocks, class B. Now, geologists, just like engineers, you'll ask 10 of them to get different answers. Some people say that that's useful. Some say that's not useful. It's just a classification system, the Green Book. What I've highlighted in the blue, though, is really where the gravels actually are within the profile and what it really means. So I hope I haven't caused any confusion there. It's not that intent. There just are different ways to classify the rocks. Be aware of that. Ostlig is another one, and that's the uh, next, the very next slide on that. Uh, I don't know if you can bring that up, Elena. Is yeah. is, is another um, reference used to classify the gravels. So um, I hope that answers your question. 
Um, and if you don't believe it does, we can maybe elaborate later when we do answer your questions um, in writing. Yep, great. Thanks, Phil. Uh, so the next question relates to slide, uh, well, pretty much all of the slides that um, have these performance uh, tables. So the question is, can you explain the performance categories used in your assessment and do they incorporate consideration of routine maintenance inputs and repair costs? So yes, they do. Uh, they do take into account maintenance and repair costs, absolutely. Um, Elena, with your permission, uh, maybe I can bring up a, another piece of information. Uh, yeah, sure, I'll hand back to you, Phil. There we go, yeah. So look, just in, in for brevity's sake, uh, these are the parameters that were used. Um, you can see there that running progression, millimetres per year, average pavement maintenance expenditure per year, high pavement maintenance spend. So what we found that, for example, if that is represents greater than $3,000 per year, we found that often there were spikes. So we've, we've tried to define the spike, greater than 6,000 spend three times or more over the life. It's done around a bit of statistics. And you can see for the different uh, design traffic categories, as the traffic gets higher, these get a bit more stringent as we go down the table. Rutting versus age, cracking versus age, and, and maybe a bit of work needs to be done on some of these. Um, and, and whether it's gonna be included in webinar two, I couldn't wholly say at this stage. Um, and then we've assigned a poor, fair, and good performance. So look, for time, I've been brief. Um, thanks, Elena, for bringing me back on the screen there. I hope that answers the question. Yep, that's great. Thanks very much. So look, um, just for time's sake, we might, um, I'll hand over now to Zia. Uh, Shri has um, asked a very uh, detailed question about a specific um, material that she has. So I'm gonna hold that over until Zia's presented her risk assessment because I think it may actually answer um, your question. But uh, we will come back to that uh, when she's done her the second part. So thanks, Phil, and welcome back, Zia. Thanks, Elena, and thanks, Phil. Um, very interesting case study there. Always good to, to see the applicability of, you know, a risk assessment in, in a real-life example. It makes it a little bit easier to follow and, and to understand, I, I think. And, and thanks, everyone, for sending your questions through. There has been some interesting ones, so um, keep sending them through. If we don't get through them today, we will answer them in writing and, and send that back out. So the final subsession for today um, will be another case study, which I'll quickly go through. Um, and it's a, we're looking at this idea of an options assessment, which is really important when we're considering uh, several different sources um, or even one source, you know, looking at uh, the different risk reduction techniques that might be applicable to our design scenario. Um, it's really pivotal for fit-for-purpose material use. It's good to get an understanding of what your material risk performance is but you know at the end of the day choosing what what different option to use um, you know based on performance and cost um, is is the most important so before we get into the options assessment I just want to touch on this idea of good practice techniques and also risk reduction techniques um, in the next slide and and these are important when we consider um, our fit for purpose material use um, and how we predict and control performance. 
So good practice techniques include things like um, our construction management and our ongoing maintenance. So uh, construction management are, you know, correct material mixing before adding uh, water, you know, to get it to a specific moisture content. Uh, also, you know, correct placement of that material, uh, correct compaction, uh, achieving dryback if that's something that we need to, to do before sealing, and also our quality assurance and quality control testing throughout a construction. And then just good practice techniques, um, you know, that we need to ensure. Uh, things like ongoing maintenance, another really good practice technique. It's looking at things like drainage upkeep, um, vegetation clearance, crack maintenance, and, and other surfacing upkeep. And this is all about keeping our moisture out of our pavement, which I mentioned earlier is, is very important. So these good practice techniques aren't going to reduce our material risk. Um, they're going to ensure that our material risk doesn't increase over time. So it's really um, important that we, we manage that and we make sure that, you know, we're thinking about this good practice um, in our construction and ongoing maintenance. Um, so, you know, we have our material risk based on our preliminary information of traffic and climate um, and material properties. And we also have the option then to reduce our material risk. So um, unlike good practice techniques, risk reduction techniques will reduce or can reduce our material um, performance risk. Um, so these risk reduction techniques may include things like altering our material properties through blending or screening or crushing, um, material stabilisation, um, you know, through a different agent suitable to that material. Um, and also the reduction of moisture infiltration uh, through moisture management. So things like uh, stabilisation and steel sho sealed shoulders, like I mentioned before, but also that, uh, you know, maintenance, um, ongoing maintenance. So making sure that, you know, our drainage is effective and, and working properly. So, you know, we can get a risk uh, from our risk assessment for our material. And, you know, if we don't think that that's, um, if we think that risk is too high for the level of service and our road purpose and that type of thing, we can start looking at these risk reduction techniques. But again, you know, which one we choose and what's appropriate is going to depend on our material and our design scenario. Not all of these techniques will, will always work in reducing risk. Um, it's really dependent on your scenario and your material. So this brings us to the options assessment tool. And our material options assessment allows various materials to be compared briefly um, before going into the, you know, the in-depth life cycle cost analysis. So if, let's say there's multiple sources of material available around a project site. This really gives us um, the ability to kind of choose the best out of these options. So really giving us a big picture look at all our source uh, options and you know, understanding the risk of each of them, uh, what, you know, what we might have to be doing to each of those materials and, and really understanding what our options are. Um, although, you know, most cases we might only have one uh, choice of our material for our design scenario. Um, and the options assessment can help us in this case by identifying the most appropriate risk reduction technique or, or techniques to be used. So um, we might have a, a risk that from our local material that might be a little bit high for the use that we want to use it for, the options assessment will let us understand, you know, if, if stabilisation is a good idea or if, you know, we, we just need to um, alter our material through, through crushing or screening. 
So the options assessment is a step-by-step -step process, which kind of designates a base scenario um, and then compares the other options relative to performance and anticipated costs. I'm just going to quickly run through an example because we are um, running a bit short on time. Um, so it just makes it a bit easier to understand with the aid of an example. So we have a scenario where we have low traffic and low moisture, um, and we're looking to design a sealed road. And these are our four different material uh, options that we have um, in, our, in our design area. And you can see here, we've got our material categories, which we've assigned depending on what type of material they are. Um, we have the finest ratio, the grading modulus, and the weight of linear shrinkage for each, so we can undertake our risk assessment. And we've also noted down things like haulage distance and source information. So um, this just gives us an idea. And again, this is you know just um, what you designate low and high haulage is going to really depend on your local situation. Um, and you can set those criteria yourself. It's just to understand you know how how far something is. Um, away from something else, you know, relative to your location. So we've we've noted that down because obviously that comes into play for cost. And we're also, you know, writing down, you know, how much volume do we have available at those sources? Is it worth us going out there to get high volumes if we don't have a huge amount of that material available? So we've gone through the uh, risk assessment the same way that Phil uh, kind of did in his case study. We're using our um, material properties here. And we've actually then outputted our material risk for our operating uh, material category, risk assessment category S1, so low traffic, low moisture. So our first material, we have a low risk. Um, our ironstone, we have a very low risk. Uh, we have a low risk and a medium risk for our other materials. So our four options are our base case. Uh, we've decided that one of the options would be to blend, uh, stabilise and haul. And again, these options are going to depend on you know, you might be looking at eight different options or you might only be looking at three. It really depends on your, your local situation um, and design scenario. So our base case in, uh, in this example is material four as it's the closest to our project location. Um, and then we'll be looking at a blend uh, with another close by material, stabilization of material four or haulage of a material from further away. So just an example of how to undertake a blend design um, we've decided in this example to blend our uh, close material four with a material three, which is uh, located a little bit further away. Um, and to undertake the blend design, uh, it is easy to do if you set up a, a spreadsheet, it's quite easy to put the formula in. And all you're looking for is, you know, a percentage of one material to the percentage of another. You can actually blend more than two. You could blend three or four different materials if you wanted to. Um, but this, in this example, I've just stuck to our base case with something that's close by. So you can um, actually calculate your new fines ratio, grading modulus and weighted linear shrinkage uh, using uh, this formula. It, you uh, are just, you know, timesing the proportion of each uh, material in the blend with its um, material property to output a new material property. So we've done that for the different properties and our so our blend uh, material properties so if we're taking 45% of materials uh, three which has a low risk of um, material risk and we're taking 55% of our base case material four at a medium risk we're actually getting this new material um, outputted 
which is giving us a very low material risk in our design scenario. So that's a really good outcome. And again, it's it's going to be a chance. This is why a spreadsheet's really good. You can set it up and you can you can go through and you can change those proportions to really target this and you know get a really good outcome. So in this um, scenario, a blend design option is actually giving us a very low material risk. So if you look at this table on the slide, I've just set up the different um, different four options that I was talking about. So we have our base, we have our blend, our stabilisation and our haulage. And I've gone through these different assessment items. And again, these assessment items, you know, you can expand these to, to be more, um, more specific or, you know, you can take these down to be more general. It's really just about capturing the different aspects of each uh, option. So our base scenario, we have a medium performance risk. Um, and I've captured this in the um, options assessment. If, if your you know, performance risk is medium, then your maintenance costs ongoing are also going to be medium. Um, conversely, if your performance risk is very low, um, like we have with our blend material, then your ongoing maintenance costs are going to be very low. So we've gone through each of these assessment items and you know, for our blend, we are hauling a bit of material three, so we do see a bit of cost there. Um, we see some extra construction costs um, in our blend because you know we've, we've got that extra plant material to, to do the blending. Um, and then if we look at our stabilisation, again, you're going to have to uh, make that assessment, you know, uh, what kind of agent am I going to use? Is it going to reduce my um, material risk? And in this stage, um, if you do have a look in the reports, you'll see this uh, example in a bit more detail. Um, stabilisation in this case of our base scenario material is actually not going to make a difference to our performance risk. Um, so these stay the same. But then if we're stabilising, you know, we've also got this cost coming in from our agent as well as the extra construction cost. So this is actually not a great option. And then our last option is a haulage of a very low um, risk material. I'll just skip back here. You can see our ironstone gravel is um, very low risk, but located a very high distance away. So that was our final option. Uh, we obviously have very low risk and very low maintenance costs, but we have very high haulage costs. So if we go through each of these, we have, we've done a bit of a numbering system here and we add them all up. Um, the blending option, which I went through, is actually the most fit for purpose option in this case. It's giving us the lowest uh, rating, so to speak. And then our next best would be the base scenario. Um, and then looking into things like haulage, obviously the cost of that comes in uh, quite high. So that's just a bit of an example about the options assessment. And again, it is included in the report um, in the appendices. So you can go through that in a bit more detail. And there's a couple, I think there's a couple of different um, uh, examples in there. Uh, so just wrapping up before we get the last few questions. So this event today has um, covered the material assessment framework along with some selected case studies. And our upcoming webinars in this series include um, uh, looking at life cycle costing in both sealed and unsealed roads, um, again, with some case studies. So tune in on, uh, tune in on the 17th of June and the 30th of June. Um, for the final the final uh, series and, and that'll cover the rest of the, the content of the technical basis report. So I'll just hand it back to Elena to uh, get any of those final few questions. We're a bit tight on time, but like I said, we will um, we will be answering those in writing for those attending today. Thanks so much there. And sorry, I'm just having some issues with my slides. Won't take me where I want to go. Um, let me just see if I can get that. Okay, great. Sorry about that. 
Um, so, yeah, look, I think um, we actually, so that we haven't received any questions relating to this section of the presentation. So you've obviously done a completely fabulous job of explaining that to everybody. Um, but uh, there is this detailed question from Shri. And so I'll, I'll throw it out there and just see what you make of it. So locally available, they have a locally available gravel that meets all the requirements of RMS 3051 except for the wet-dry strength variation for DGS 20 and DGS 40. The specified maximum variation is 40 and the test results showed 45. How would you overcome this sort of deficiency for use on sealed roads? Um, that's a very good question and obviously a very specific question to that material. Yeah. This is where um, you know specifications do become difficult. You might be meeting the specifications, like in this case, with your grading and your plasticity um, and, and those type of things well, and then you have one item that falls outside of that, um, which in this case is this wet-dry strength variation. Um, I think when it comes to, to these kind of scenarios, you know, this kind of risk assessment probably isn't um, relevant you know, because you are already meeting most of those specifications. Um, it, it's really about understanding what the risk is, um, you know, of using a material that will that might have one criteria outside. So I suppose, you know, if this was my uh, scenario, I'd be going back and, and seeing if I could find any performance indicators of a similar material that, you know, might have had this elevated wet dry strength or, or um, non-standard um, non wet dry strength, just to understand if, you know, if that's going to be an issue in, in my operating conditions. Um, I would assume um, it's sometimes it's difficult to find this type of, you know, information. So it's always good to, you know, have a chat to people who may have maybe um, more experienced or, or, you know, people who have retired, you know, they, they have a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge about these materials which isn't, like I said, always documented. So it, it's just good to, um, you know, go and have a look at, at how other things have performed in a similar manner in those similar operating conditions um, to kind of make that judgment call whether that, um, whether that criteria being out is going to be an issue. Great. All right. Thanks so much, Leah. And um, thank you also to Phil and thank you to everybody who's provided um, such great questions for today's session. We do really appreciate that. Um, we will close up now, but I did just want to um, remind you about the upcoming webinars that we have. Um, so specifically the two that Zia has mentioned on the lifecycle costing framework and its application to sealed roads on the 17th of June and to unsealed roads on the 30th of June. Uh, you can sign up for those sessions on our website on the address there. Thank you, everybody. After we close out today's session, a questionnaire will pop up on your screen. If you could take a couple of minutes to send us your feedback, just um, it's very helpful for us to understand what's worked for you, what hasn't worked for you, so that we can shape the sessions um, to meet your needs. And we do read everything that you send us, and it's always really helpful for us to get that feedback. So I will close out today um, and wish you, everybody, a great rest of the day. We hope you stay well and safe. and um, Thanks, Zia, and thanks, Phil. Cheers, Elena. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye, everybody.